1: Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. There are next-door neighbors, and you can actually see Russia from land here in Alaska. Former Alaska Governor and Vice Presidential Candidate Sarah Palin is known for her gaffes, from saying that Paul Revere warned the British to saying the Constitution is based on the Bible. The list goes on and on. However, it's not Palin but the New York Times that's on trial for false statements in a defamation case. Palin claims the newspaper hurt her reputation with a 2017 opinion piece that tried to tie her political rhetoric to a deadly shooting. It's an uphill battle because of the Supreme Court's landmark 1964 decision in New York Times v. Sullivan. But Palin may be looking beyond the New York trial to a Supreme Court where two justices have suggested revisiting the Sullivan decision. Joining me is Gotham Hans, a professor at Vanderbilt Law School. Tell us about the New York Times standard that Palin is going to have to meet.
2: So in defamation cases, the Supreme Court has established that for public figures like Sarah Palin, the plaintiff Palin in this case needs to establish that actual malice was present, that that, that the publisher's choices were so egregious or at such a high level that they meet that actual malice standard. This is because part of our First Amendment tradition in this country is that we want to encourage speech, we want to encourage debate, particularly about public officials, public people, and so any kind of lower standard than actual malice might discourage that kind of public discourse that the First Amendment is aiming to promote.
1: The Times hasn't lost a defamation case in more than half a century. So is that a very high bar for plaintiffs to get over?
2: Yes. It's very difficult for plaintiffs to prevail in defamation cases, particularly when they're public officials like Sarah Palin because of the Supreme Court's decisions dating back to the Sullivan case from the early 60s. That's why, as you noted, The Times has frequently prevailed as a defendant in such cases.
1: If Palin loses here, would the Supreme Court take this case? Is it likely? I
2: think it's hard to say. Lawyers love to disclaim predictive qualities when it comes to the Supreme Court. I do think that Palin and her legal team realize that it's going to be difficult for them to win under the current law. Sometimes people bring cases thinking that, well, maybe we'll lose at the trial level. Maybe we'll even lose at the appellate court level. But we're going to aim for the Supreme Court so we can try to get a change to the law in the Supreme Court. And I think in this case, that's not a wild bet to make because at least two Supreme Court justices have some concerns about the precedent from the Sullivan case from the 60s. Both Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, have made written statements saying that the Sullivan precedent and potentially the actual malice standard need to be revisited or should be revisited by the Supreme Court. So it takes four votes on the Supreme Court to grant certiorari for review of a case, and we know there are possibly two, so that's halfway there. I think the possibility that there are another two is certainly conceivable to me.
1: What are the reasons for thinking it's time to revisit New York Times v. Sullivan?
2: I think that the Sullivan decision, although I think really necessary to promote a free press and ensuring that we can have the kinds of public debate we want in this country, has had critics since it came down in the 60s, and in part because it's made defamation cases harder for plaintiffs to win on. If you look at the U.K., for example, they have a very different standard, and so it's easier in in libel cases in the U.K. for plaintiffs to prevail. And so I suppose that some people feel that Sullivan doesn't work or maybe in a digital economy with a different kind of news media landscape that it's not applicable. So I think that there might be appetite and certainly, as I mentioned, there is from Justice Corsuch and Thomas to maybe live in Sullivan or make it a bit easier for plaintiffs to win defamation cases. I think there are lots of ways that we could see the court moving. Were they to take the Palin case or another case like it. You know, I think many Supreme Court observers and many citizens have noticed that the Supreme Court has been revisiting a lot of its longstanding precedents in recent years, Roe v. Wade being the most obvious. And so this might be another entry on that list of longstanding cases that, given the conservative nature of the Supreme Court's current members, could be up for revisiting.
1: Can you explain why there has been this conservative outcry against the Sullivan decision because it protects what people see as liberal media as well as what people see as conservative media. It protects them both.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of the reason that I'm concerned about the possibility of revisiting Sullivan because the First Amendment, i like to say, doesn't have a a partisan valence. We all benefit from the First Amendment protections. They don't just accrue to liberals or to conservatives. And so what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And you could see a limiting of Sullivan, not just harm the New York Times, but harm right-wing media publications as well. I think that there's a lot of antipathy on the right towards what they consider the media, the mainstream media, and I think that this case is certainly part of that trend. I think to think that it's only going to harm the mainstream media is short-sighted as the Sullivan decision and the on it more broadly protect all of us, not just on one side or the other. So That, I think, is lurking under the surface of the appetite for limiting the Sullivan decision. I know that there's been some scholarship noting that judges have become much more hostile to the media in decisions over the last few decades. And I think that's just a sign of the larger public disapproval or maybe hostility towards what they perceive of as the mainstream media.
1: This was an editorial piece. Is that treated differently than a straight news story?
2: That distinction, uh, I don't think, is really drawn in the cases, in part because I think that's not always a clear line, certainly for the times that they have that uh, distinction between the news and the opinion desks. But I don't think that's material to this case. The Sullivan decision was actually about an advertisement. So it really comes down to what the publisher is promulgating in its media.
1: The Times argues that it was an honest mistake and that it corrected the errors in about 12 hours. Is that a good defense under the Sullivan standard?
2: Yeah, I think that's a strong point in the Times' favor, that they acted expeditiously, relatively speaking, to correct it. I think that the plaintiffs, Tara Penelin and her legal team, would probably note that 12 hours in a digital ecosystem is like 12 days in the past. And That's maybe part of why they think that Sullivan doesn't work well in today's media landscape, because of the acceleration of the time horizon. But, you know, that's not part of the current standard under the law. Perhaps it might be if that's where it goes on appeal.
1: How would you describe what reckless disregard is? Because all these pieces go through various levels at newspapers.
2: I think it would have to be just completely... Shutting your eyes and ignoring the evidence to a really high degree, which is part of the reason it's a high standard. It really needs to demonstrate complete lack of any kind of care. And I think the Times would argue that that's not present in this case. You know, some of the defamation cases that have been going on as of late that implicate the standard, you know, I think the Dominion case is one of them about voting machines. There, I think the plaintiffs have argued that there's this complete and constant putting your head in the sand on the part of the media organizations in those cases. So it really needs to be pretty flagrant, which is part of the reason that most plaintiffs have a hard time winning.
1: I'm wondering, you know, at night you have TV hosts saying some pretty outrageous things. And without the time standard would they be held on a tighter rein?
2: Yes, I think so. I think that you would see much more caution and maybe even hesitancy from members of the media, from interviewees, and that cuts both ways. I think that some would say that, you know, we need to have more care, that the people should be more guarded or thoughtful about their statements. But more commonly, at least in existing cases, The courts have said, no, you know, the First Amendment is really broad for a reason, and we are trying to avoid a kind of self policing or a fear of at least legal action. That the best way to have people try to be cautious about what they say is not for the specter of the lawsuit to be present, but rather for social mores and, and other ways of societal cohesion among certain ideas is better. Oftentimes, lawyers and judges will say, you know, there are lots of social problems that we have, but maybe the law is not the best way to address those. The law is not always the best tool to try to promote certain goals or discourage certain outcomes. And the broad standard that we have now sort of takes lawsuits largely off the table for defamation and moves us to a setting where society as a whole or American culture as a whole can try to decide what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. Of course, in a polarized era like today, that's very hard to to achieve and, and maybe even impossible. And perhaps that's why the lack of a social mechanism for developing ideas is perhaps why some people are more optimistic about some kind of legal outcome.
1: This is a very expensive case, and if it goes to the Supreme Court, even more expensive. Is she paying her lawyers, or are these lawyers pro bono, or do you have any idea about them? I don't know about that. I
2: mean, there's lots of ways to finance lawsuits. It could be pro bono. I think sometimes you see expensive cases being litigated pro bono because they're high profile, or they they might accrue some kind of social standing. There is litigation financing that seems to be a little odd in this kind of situation, but it's, you know there's all sorts of ways that you could imagine the case being finance. But I, I think that pro bono or, or reduced hourly rate, certainly possible for a high-profile case where if they win, not only do they win big potentially on a financial reward, but they may also win reputationally as the legal team that took down or limited Sullivan and took down or or harmed the times.
1: Is this the highest profile defamation case that we've seen in a while?
2: This is, I think, the most high profile example of a lot of defamation cases that are being litigated right now or being contemplated. I think there's one against the Southern Poverty Law Center as well. And so I think those who are opposed to Sullivan smell blood in the water because of the statements of Justices Gorsuch and Thomas. And I suspect that we will see, if not in this case, some other case that may pique the Supreme Court's interest.
1: As a scholar in this area, do you think that Times v. Sullivan is the right standard?
2: I think so, yes, because I think it has really allowed for the growth of media and of real strong or stronger media landscape than we would have had otherwise in terms of the differences of opinions. I mentioned the UK. If you look there, there's a lot of reporting that happens in the US that can't be done in the UK, particularly because of their higher prevailing rates for libel cases. And so I think it is on balance good. I understand some of the concerns, but I think a world without the Sullivan case would really be to all of our detriment.
1: Thanks for being on the show.
3: Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel, Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. President Joe Biden's unprecedented inaugural day firing of the Federal Labor Board's top lawyer during the Trump administration is teed up for judicial review at a Republican-dominated U.S. appeals court in New Orleans. Business software firm Excella Enterprise says that Biden did not have the legal authority to remove former National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Peter Robb. The company argues that made the actions of Robb's replacement legally invalid. Those actions included issuing an unfair labor practice complaint against Excella for failing to bargain with a union, leading to an NLRB ruling against the company joining me is ann lafasso a law professor at west virginia university and tell us about the issue here so the question here is whether
4: the president was allowed to remove the general counsel from the national labor relations board which the president did it was one of his very very first acts on january 20th though it might have been the 21st and He removed the general counsel, Peter Robb, and eventually he put in acting general counsel, Peter Orr. Although there was a step in between, there was an interim acting one. And then eventually there is now a full-fledged general counsel in there, Jennifer Abruzzo, who has been, with the advice and consent of the Senate, has been approved by the Senate. So she's in there legitimately at this point. The question here is whether or not that act was constitutional and if it was unconstitutional does that mean that this case now is void
1: do you know why biden moved right away to remove him yeah
4: the unions felt that peter robb was moving in a direction that was at a very accelerated pace that was very anti-union now whether that's true or not but that certainly was the perception of unions and that he was constantly challenging the way the board had done things for three quarters of a century. And so unions put pressure on Biden to get rid of uh, Rob as soon as possible in order to, in their view, limit the damage that Rob was doing. Because the general counsel can shape exactly what goes before the board. The board can't do anything without um, a case before it. So it's very important who the general counsel is in the NLRB.
1: So tell us what the company Excella's position is here. So
4: the company allegedly engaged in unfair labor practice. The board found that unfair labor practice. So the company says, oh, that's all well and good. We don't think we did it at all. We don't think we acted unlawfully. But even if we did act unlawfully, um, this whole case is void because the general counsel was not allowed to bring this case because the general counsel was appointed unconstitutionally.
1: Has the NLRB ruled on Biden's termination of Rob?
4: Yes. And it says that the Supreme Court's case in Collins v. Yellen um, closes the door to that. So in other words, that it is perfectly fine what Biden did because the case that was before the Supreme Court last term, Collins v. Yellen, makes it very clear that the president has removal authority over agencies administrative agencies so Collins V Yellen is one of two cases there's Sala law and Collins V Yellen and this is what's really important here is that in these two cases the Supreme Court held that the president has authority to remove lesser executive officials so essentially article 2 vests the full executive power in the president, and that generally requires that the president maintain unrestricted removal power over lesser executive officers who exercise significant executive authority so that the president is ultimately accountable to the people for those actions. So in other words, this is a very expansive view of executive authority that the president has these inherent powers, the full executive power to remove agency heads. And therefore, even if Congress wrote into a statute that there are restrictions on the president's power of removal, those, at least so far, have been ruled unconstitutional.
1: I mean, doesn't that answer this case? That's what the board said. Now, in
4: their briefs, The company has – their attorneys have argued that, first of all, um, Section 3 of the act says that the the president has the authority to remove board members. Well, first of all, that might be – like you suggested, that might be unconstitutional. But second, given these cases before the Supreme Court. But now, um, on top of this, there's no text. There's actually no restriction on the president's removal power in the National Labor Relations Act with regard to the General Counsel. So it should answer the question. Now, that's why I think they're probably teeing up to re-challenge this in the Supreme Court. So it would be hard for the Fifth Circuit to go against these two precedents because they're mandatory authority for the Fifth Circuit.
1: And that's even though it's considered the most conservative circuit in the country.
4: Yeah, it's conservative, but it's not going to be – it can't be results-oriented, right? So in other words, that's what a lot of people think, that conservative means it's going to come up with a conservative result. But I always tell my students what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So if you have a strong executive um, authority, the precedent now is very strong executive power. And by the way, that's what Trump put into the Supreme Court, like Kavanaugh is known for having very, very strong beliefs about a strong executive. So we have Supreme Court right now that seems to at least starting to favor very strong executive powers. Well, now that means when the president is a Democrat, the president has strong executive powers. It doesn't matter whether the president is pro-business, pro-labor, or whatever the president is. That's strong executive powers. And the Fifth Circuit has no choice but to go with the Supreme Court's precedent. So the only thing the Fifth Circuit can do is if it thinks that these cases are not not on point. But it's really hard to imagine why they wouldn't be on point, because one of them, at least one of them, deals with an independent agency like the National Labor Relations Board. And in fact, these cases are weaker than the case right now in the NLRB, because in the LRB case, there's literally no text that puts a limit on the president's removal power. So what they could try to argue is, well, the president doesn't have removal power because it's not in the text, except these cases stand for a sort of inherent power that the president has to remove under the Constitution.
1: So they're saying that The NLRA's removal protections for NLRB members also apply to the general counsel. Does that make sense to you?
4: Under Section 3 of the Act, the president cannot remove board members except for cause. It's limited cause, too. They define it as, this is what it says, Any member of the board may be removed by the president upon notice and hearing for neglect of duty or malfeasance in office, but for no other cause and then it says nothing about the general counsel. So what I'm saying is, one, section three may be unconstitutional, in which case the president could even remove board members based on this precedent. But two, forget about that. Let's say that's constitutional, which I think is in grave, that's highly dubious now after these precedents. Okay. There's nothing in the text that limits, president's removal authority of the general counsel. There's no text like that at all. It doesn't. It's silent completely.
1: They allege that it makes the role more political to have the president be able to fire the general counsel without cause. Do we accept already that this role is political?
4: oh yeah absolutely and it does make it even more political it makes it more accountable political meaning accountable to the people that's what politics is right i mean we can agree or disagree whether we want this to be i mean we're stepping into a world now where it looks like if there's a change in party or even if it's not the president can remove the heads of agencies that is definitely what these cases are saying and you know presidents don't want to do that completely because there's a couple of reasons. One is it creates incredible instability in the agencies, or at least some instability, right? You don't want to keep on removing heads of agencies. So you want to do it at times when you think there's a reason, right? But that reason now, and I think this is probably what the company is suggesting, can be political after the political election. And some people think that's good because they'll say that, well, if we go from Republican to Democrat or from Democrat to Republican, what we're basically saying is the people want a different course of action and they don't want to wait two years in, into the president's term to see things happening. So, for example, unions greatly supported Biden, and so they want to see action right away. It would have been delayed um, had Biden not taken this action right away. And by the way, if the, the Republicans win the next time, the Republicans can remove Jennifer Brutso right away. So that's called accountability to the people. But the problem with that view is that are people really, are the people really voting for a president because of what the president's views on the National Labor Relations Board are? Some people might be, but others might be because they like the president's views on abortion and they want to have certain um, judicial picks. So this is this is a very interesting debate, and this is definitely – we are definitely changing from a, a a different model of administrative law here. And that's why I think this could easily go to the Supreme Court. The president just announced that he's removed, um, I think, the head of the Social Security Administration So uh, recently. So this is definitely going to – I think this will go to the Supreme Court again.
1: Why do you think that if the court has already ruled on this in two other cases, why – why take this one as well?
4: Maybe not this one, but others, just to be, because this is why. The first one was a 5 4 decision. And there's two strong dissents in the second one by Gorsuch and Thomas. And Gorsuch and Thomas are not uh, fans of this at all. So there is, what they need to do is they need to get, they need to convince someone, because potentially, You can look at the first one, Saylor Law, and say, oh, what was different about that one that got it closer? So they would have to think of some arguments. Why would this be different? Is this the right case to take up to lessen presidential authority?
1: Do you know where uh, Justice Barrett stands on this? I think she would, right now, tend to be with
4: presidential authority. But that's not going to necessarily. We have to see, there's not enough data to really predict. I think we know that Thomas and Gorsuch really don't like this at all. All right. Alito loves this. So, this is what I'm saying. This is presidential power tends to be a conservative thing. Republicans tend to want more and more power in the president. Well, the Democrats are just taking advantage of that right now. They're like, okay, that's what you wanted. What's good for the goose is good for the gander.
1: But then why? And that's the way it works. Why are the conservatives split then? Why do Gorsuch and Thomas oppose the presidential power and and Alito, you think, is for it?
4: Well, one, that's what they said. But why do I think they're like
1: that? Why is the conservative bloc split on this?
4: Okay, because this is my guess about Gorsuch. My guess on Gorsuch is because he doesn't like the administrative state at all. So there's other things. What what I think the lay, what lay people or people who are not experts in constitutional law or in the, in the court don't understand, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't have to think about these things, is they think that everything is about um, what, your polit- what your political views are. But these justices have very strong views and ideologies and, and theories about how the Constitution should run. So whether you, you'll see that sometimes Thomas will, will actually go with the liberals on something because of a different principle that he really wants that's more important than the result. Really, the the most result-oriented person right now on the court is
3: Alito.
4: Alito, almost always, you can predict which way he's going to go. It's probably going to be whatever politically is conservative. And I'm not suggesting that that means he's not authentic or anything, but it just seems that he's the one. The others, it's hard to predict. Remember Gorsuch and he wrote Bostock, which was on same-sex marriage. People were shocked. I was not shocked about that because Gorsuch cares about textualism. And that was what, what he was pushing was the textualism because he wants that argument then for the next case and he wants to be consistent. So they're pushing agendas that we don't necessarily see.
1: But if this went to the Supreme Court now, what's your best guess about how it would turn out?
4: Biden would be upheld.
1: Let's just say that Biden wasn't upheld. Has Abruzzo done enough within the agency so that whatever or did has been ratified?
4: I think so. I mean, she's been doing a lot. I mean, they have been the the NLRB has been screwed. By its actions so much in the last 20 years by doing things and then it has to be re-ratified. You know, Noel Canning and other cases that went to the Supreme Court that I think it's learned its lessons. So they were ready for this. She hit the ground running and she already had, she was ratifying things. So I don't think we're going to have a replay of what happened in the early 21st century. You know, like a decade ago. I don't think we're going to have a replay of that. But it's going to depend on what the court says. But my best analysis as a person who teaches both labor law and constitutional law is that we will not have a replay of that and that very little will be affected going forward. Also, they're on much stronger ground than they were a decade ago. We really have seen a change in the perception of executive power that's much less nuanced and much more about the president has a lot of power.
1: Thanks so much, Anne. That's Anne Lofaso, a professor at West Virginia University. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
3: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.